The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. First John chapter 5, going to be in verses 1 through 13. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That statement, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Many of you, many of us, myself included, we, we've sat in church and been to church since we were you know, children. And this statement doesn't come as any surprise to us because we're so familiar with the concept, with the idea, with the thought that Jesus, He and He alone, is the only way that a person can get to heaven. But if you step back from your church upbringing and you examine a culture that is all around us that is less and less Christian, that is far more secularized, far more worldly than it was even in past generations in our country especially, uh, the, the statement in our culture today comes at a great shock when many hear it, that they, they would be shocked and even offended that we would propose such a thing. Maybe some of you even in here this morning are a little shocked, a little surprised that that we would hold to such a truth, that Jesus, and Jesus alone, Jesus only, is the way that mankind, that all human beings everywhere on planet Earth can can actually get get to heaven, that He and He alone, that, that there are not many ways, as some would propose, that it's not just... A, uh, do your best, and if your good outweighs your bad, then you get there. But there, there's only one way, there, there's only one means by which sinful man can be reconciled to holy God, and, and that is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Now you can say that, and I can say that, but what's far more important than what you or I can say is what has God said? I, I hope and pray what we say is what God has said, and I want us to examine this morning what God has said. I want us to look to 1 John chapter 5. And in these verses, there's, there's so much that we don't have time to examine in, in full. So we'll, we'll pass through much, but, but I hope to get the big picture presented to you this morning about what John is, is presenting to us, about what John is arguing here, that when it comes to all the, all the false doctrine that he was facing in that early church that he's correcting, what he emphasizes most above all else is that Jesus Christ truly is the only way. only way to heaven, the only way to becoming a child of God, the only way to being born again, as he puts it. First John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus...
Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Jesus is the only way to heaven. As we walk back through all that we just read, I I want to hang our thoughts on on three pegs to help me communicate the message John lays out for us here and to help us us understand it better. Three three pegs to to hang our thoughts this morning. A call to believe, a call to listen, and and a call to live. First of all, a call to to believe, verses 1 through 5, faith in Jesus overcomes the world. A call to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's only by faith in Jesus, it's only by faith in the person and work of the Lord, of the Messiah, of the Christ, that we overcome. That we overcome what? That we overcome the world. Verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now John in these first couple of verses is summarizing everything that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. Everything he has been presenting and teaching there at the church of Ephesus to these believers. He's he's repeating it all. He's kind of tying it all together. And he's emphasizing where it all leads to this grand victory over the world which comes through faith in the the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he he repeats something he's already taught us, that the one who believes in Jesus has been born of God. It's by faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that you become a child of God, that you become born again, that you're redeemed, that you're forgiven, that you're saved. All of those different pictures point to that reality of how sinful men are reconciled to holy God. How is it that we and our our wrong that we are and in the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of this world, how is it that we get to heaven? How is it that we are redeemed? How is it that we are forgiven? How is it that we are saved? How is it that we are born again? He says here, it's those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those who come to understand and believe upon who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished for us at Calvary in particular. He says, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. He's reiterating again everything we've looked at in weeks past that a true love 
of God that is known and experienced, when you really come to understand what God did for you upon Calvary through Jesus dying upon a cross for your sins, it's not a love that you receive and then leave totally unchanged by it. That when you come to know and experience this love of God, it, 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 it births you anew, afresh. You're, given a, you're made a new creation in Christ. You're given the Holy Spirit of God. There is a renewed, even a... a it's not even renewed. It's simply made in you a, a, a regenerated heart that, that loves God in return, obeys the commands of God, and then loves one another. That, that if we've experienced the love of God and we know His grace and mercy, we can't help but extend that grace and mercy to others and show the love of God to one another. And so he says, by this we know the love uh, uh, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. All of these things go hand in hand. Now don't get the fruit and the root confused. Don't think that the fruit of our salvation is the root of our salvation. No, it's the love of God revealed for us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the root. That's what saves us. But when we experience that life, just as a root that is alive brings forth a, a plant that bears fruit, the fruit of salvation is obedience to God's command and and love for one another. All of this we've covered in depth in, in, depth in the, the weeks past. He adds a little bit to it here when he says, and the commandments of God are not burdensome. Mm, I wish I could dwell here for a while. I almost thought of preaching an entire sermon on it, but, but for sake of getting to Christmas messages, I cannot. Time will not permit me to, but I must speak a bit on it. That the commands of God are not burdensome. You know, when I was a teenager, I can remember almost being jealous of those that were living in sin, doing the crazy things. You say, you're a preacher. I wasn't a preacher back then. But, but back then, as a teenager raised in a Christian home, living a Christian life, I can tell you I obeyed the commands of God out of a fear that I knew I would be caught. I, that's really what kept me living the right way as a teenager. I knew that I knew God, is, is, is He was real, and I knew if I screwed up, I was a child of His, and I would be found out, and I would be caught, and, it, and my dad w would have uh, a discipline He would bring upon me for it. And that, thank the Lord, kept me from doing things that I would have done if it weren't for that in my immaturity. But as I've grown, and as I've matured in Christ, and even lived a little longer on this life, I've come to see a little bit deeper into the commands of God. That we often think of the commands of God as something that keep us from enjoying that which is most enjoyable. The world around us thinks that way. That the commands of God are, are like constraints that, that prevent us from doing that which is most pleasurable. From doing that which would bring us the most joy, the most happiness, the, the most satisfaction in life. And as you live life for a little while, what you come to understand is no, 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 no. Pleasures of sin last for a season, but after that come the consequences of sin and the destruction and the brokenness that sin brings in one's life. And you live long enough and you understand all the truths of the Proverbs that deal with those that walk in the ways of, of God are blessed and, and, and prosper. The, the, the commands of God are not, are not barriers that keep us from what is best. They're actually guardrails that keep us from what's worst. They're guardrails that keep us from jumping off the cliff, that, that bring about 
pain and suffering and hurt, and you look in the lives of others who enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season, and you look at their lives after a little bit of time passes, and you see, my goodness, it's brought devastation in their life. There's broken families, there's broken relationships, there's, there, there's consequences to the sinful actions that were taken because of their disobedience to the commands of God, and yet I look to, to my life, and by the grace of God, I've not ventured down so many of those pathways, only by the grace of God, and, and I can experience the blessings of God. And many of you have seen that same thing true in your own life, or at least evidenced even in the lives of others, that, that God's commands are not barriers that keep us from what is best. They're actually the blessings of God to keep us from the destruction that sin brings. The commands of God are not burdensome. Religion can be burdensome. But the commands of God are not a burden. Not when you see them for what they truly are. And then he continues, the main point here, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Now, what is the world here? The world is everything in this life that is broken and opposed to God. It's sin and all the consequences of sin. It's that entire system that is in opposition to God, to what is in, in, in opposition to God and to, to the truth of God and to the commands of God. And so it involves Satan and all of his forces. It involves all of mankind and the whole world system that is fallen, that is broken, that lives as if there is no God, pretending we can do what we want, whenever we want, however we want, for as long as we want. All of these things in this life, and even bringing into all of the consequences of sin, the pains and tribulations and, and trials of this life, all of that is of the world. All of that is the world. How is it that one overcomes the world? How is it that we fix what we know is wrong with inside of us? That if each and every one of you were honest this morning, you would say, my life is not what it ought to be. There's that sense of oughtness that God has written upon our hearts, what, what ought to be in this life. Little kids ought not to die of starvation. We, we ought not to murder one another. We ought not to wrong and slander and lie and do all the things that we know, even by the law of God written upon the heart, that are wrong. The things that we ought not to be, the, the world, this world system and all that it is and all the brokenness and all the pain and all the suffering. How is it that one can have victory in it? How is it that one can overcome it? John says here there's only one way. And it's not your works. It's not your money. It's not your religion. It's not your knowledge and your intellect and your education. He says there's one way. It's only our faith. And the commands of God are not burdensome. It's, it's so simple that many reject it because of the simplicity of it, that you don't come to God in all of your works and all of your commitments. You come to God in your brokenness and in your sin, and, and you come to Christ. Because Jesus is the one who has overcome. And Jesus is the only one in whom we may now overcome. He says, who is it that, that can overcome the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That there's not another way, there's not another means that education is not going to overcome the brokenness of your life. That, that, that your, you know, your will and the strength that you work up within your own fortitude is not going to overcome the brokenness of this life. That the money that you accumulate will not overcome the brokenness of this life. How is it that one overcomes the world? It's only by faith in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a call 
to believe. Paul, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. If you're looking for the solutions to the problems of this life, the answer is only found in faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, notice a call to listen. Not only a call to believe, but a call to listen. Three witnesses that John brings to the stand to declare the truth of what I just declared to you, that salvation is by Christ and Christ alone, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He brings forth three witnesses that God has used to proclaim this truth of Jesus' deity. We won't read it all for sake of time again, but he brings forth the witness of the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And you say, what in the world? I know what the Spirit is, but what is this water and blood speaking about? First, the water. I believe the water here, John is referring to, to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even with the water and the blood, and as he says, not only the water, but the water and the blood, I, I believe that John is confronting an early church heresy where there were some proposing that Jesus was the Son of God when he was baptized, the Spirit comes upon him, but, but in no way could the Son of God have died upon a cross that he ceased being deity, he ceased being the Son of God when he was crucified upon the cross, that, that when he was crucified upon the cross, the Spirit of God had left him, he ceased being deity, and he died a common man. And it was an early church heresy that I think was beginning to creep up in this church at Ephesus that John is confronting here. And so he stresses not only water, but water and the blood. Water being baptism, and we'll look to in a moment, blood being the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed. He's proclaimed this message of Jesus being the Savior of the world, first in the baptism, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and then also in the ending by what he accomplished, even in his bloodshed. So first, let's think about the water, about the testimony of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was hesitant to baptize Jesus because his message was one of repentance. John was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus comes along who he knows is the Son of God, who he knows is the Messiah, who he proclaimed even as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to be baptized, John says, wait a second, you should baptize me. Why am I going to baptize you? And Jesus says, no, this is an obedience to God. I must do it. And he's baptized. Jesus is picturing there, even at the onset of his ministry, taking the place of sinners, being identified among the transgressors. He's not being baptized in a symbolic picture of the remission of his sins. He's being baptized, ultimately tied into the blood to point to what he's truly going to accomplish for you and for me, for sinners, that he will take the place of you and me, that there will be a death, a burial, and a resurrection that baptism, though they did not see it then, will come to a full picture, a full meaning in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His bloodshed. And so, so John is baptized. John the Baptist is, is bapt, has baptized Jesus. And when that happens, when he had been baptized, it says in Matthew 3.16, Jesus came up immediately out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
God proclaimed through the water that Jesus is the Christ. Even the voice of God thundered from heaven, Jesus is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The blood, next, the testimony of the crucifixion. Not only in the water, but the water and the blood. John speaking here, obviously, of the blood that Jesus shed for you and for me at Calvary. The blood declares to us the truthfulness of the statement, Jesus is the only way. Like nothing else, I believe, in the life of Christ, even in all the Scriptures, even more than the virgin birth even more than the baptism of Jesus, the bloodshed of Jesus. And this is one that liberal Christianity is so quick to depart from. We don't like to think about the blood or talk about the blood. And yet you read your Bible and it's a very bloody story that all through the Old Testament, a sacrifice of blood was was established by God. But he said all the way back in Leviticus that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And for thousands of years, the Israelites would would provide blood sacrifices as a means of of having their sins covered before holy God. You go back before even the Levitical law. You go all the way back even to the Garden of Eden. And what you find is Adam and Eve had sinned. They were in the shame of their sin there in the garden. They had understood and recognized their nakedness. And it was actually God who was the one who provided the first blood sacrifice. God, it says, took and clothed them with the cloak of an animal, with the skin of an animal. He took and he he made a sacrifice that the shame and nakedness of their depravity, of their sin, could be covered. All of this is leading up from the beginning of time for God's redemptive plan, His redemptive purposes, and the person and work of the Lord Jesus to be fully understood and unfolded when Jesus comes and He's baptized through water and then He's baptized through death, baptized through blood even at the crucifixion where Jesus becomes sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You lose the blood of Christ. We do away with Jesus, the Son of God, dying upon a cross for our sins. We lose salvation. We lose the means of being forgiven. There is no way to heaven apart from that. It was the only way that we could be forgiven. It's the only way that our sins could be covered. We can't cover our sins, atone for our sins through our good works. We can't atone for our sins through our religious efforts. We needed one who was perfect, a sacrifice, bloodshed, in order that God could wipe away our sins and forgive us. And Jesus did it all. Hebrews chapter 9. Listen. So what the author of Hebrews says, what God says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And he says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And looking back to those Old Testament sacrifices, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
came not only through water, but through blood. When Jesus died upon that cross, the sky was darkened by God and the earth shook, it says. And the the veil of the temple, that veil that represented the separation of holy God and sinful man, it says that veil was torn from top to bottom. God tearing that separation because the atoning sacrifice of Jesus was accomplished. And it wasn't Jesus or God who spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It was a centurion, a Gentile, who speaks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. A picture even of that message going out to all the world. All the world coming to understand there is a God. And Jesus is His Son. And He died on Calvary for my sins and was buried and raised again. A Gentile proclaiming, truly, this was the Son of God. The hymns of time past, there's so many that speak so strongly about the blood. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Are you washed in the blood and the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then perhaps the most gruesome way of them all. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Think about the imagery there. There have been some who have refused to sing that song even within churches because they say it's too bloody. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What would would possess someone to to write that imagery. It is one who knew and who understood what John is proclaiming here, that Jesus has proclaimed His deity, that He truly is the Savior of the world, not merely through His baptism, but through His blood. Not only the water, but especially through His blood, that He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the Christ, the Messiah, that He paid the ransom for your sins and my sins, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there's no other way we can get to God than we can get to the Father but through Him, through what He did for us at Calvary, through the shedding of His blood. A couple minutes left. Thirdly, the witness of the Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit. John 3.8 speaks of the Spirit being like the wind, blowing wherever it blows and doing what it does. And you don't know where it came from or where it went, but you see the result of it, regeneration. But the Spirit of God, as we talked about two weeks ago, always honors the Son of God and always honors the Word of God. 
that the Spirit of God, when He came in Acts chapter 2, gave witness to Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Messiah, that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, bears witness that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Spirit of God, even upon the hearts of those who believe, it says in verse 10, even within our heart, is bearing witness to us, is proclaiming to us the truthfulness of that statement that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. The Spirit of God is at work in the children of God to lead us to faith. Three witnesses. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. If you believe a a person and three people that come forward with an account, with a testimony, John says, how much more so should you believe the account, the testimony of God that He's given through the witnesses of the, the water, of the blood, and of the Spirit? The call to believe, a call to listen. Thirdly, lastly, a call to live, verses 11 and 13. He sums it all up. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And where is this life? It's only in His Son. A simple formula. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John's not making it complicated here. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have eternal life. Now, a philosopher can say what a philosopher wants to say. And a preacher can proclaim what a preacher wants to preach. And an individual can believe whatever they want to believe. And and we can pretend as if there is no truth and everything is relative. And you believe what you want to believe. And I'll believe what I want to believe. And in the end, maybe there is nothing and it's just annihilation and it's all over with. But if there is a God who is real, and if there is a God who has spoken, and He's inspired the words that we're reading, it's pretty clear. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have eternal life. These things I have written to you, that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So eternal life is not something we earn and achieve. It's a free gift of God brought about through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice also, eternal life is not something that we're going to get then when we get there. Eternal life has been given to you and me now in the present. It's a call to live. A call to live life today in the reality of what's ours. That eternal life is ours. That we don't fear death or the grave. That we don't even go through the the brokenness of this life in the same way that unbelievers do because we have been given eternal life and we know all things are working together for the good of those who love God who are called according to His purposes. We know that even in our sufferings God is preparing for us an eternal way to glory that is beyond all comparison and so it's not something that we look for and hope in then. It's something that we live in the reality of now as a believer. A call to live. Eternal life is yours if you are in Christ. It's only in and through Jesus. So as we close, put before you the statement that we began with, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Do you know that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? Has there been a time in your life 
where, where it's the, the Bible says in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that, that somebody brought to you this message about the truth of who Jesus is, and, and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon your heart as you hear the word of God about Jesus, you're, you're led to repentance and faith. Has that happened in your life? that has, give thanks to God for it and thank God that you're a believer and and live in light of that salvation, live in light of the eternal life that's yours this morning. But if you haven't, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You need Jesus. I beg you, as we come to a time of invitation, get it settled. It's as simple as turning to Him, just confessing your sin. God, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Jesus died upon a cross for my sins, and I call out to you, save me because of what he did for me at Calvary. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he died upon Calvary. He was buried and raised again. If you've never turned to God and prayed that prayer, that sinner's prayer, I beg you, do that now as we close in this invitation. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. Without it, we would be blind and lost. Lord, you've given it to us. And it teaches and points us to Christ, what you've done for us through Jesus. Not only coming and through his baptism, beginning that great ministry, but especially through his blood shed at Calvary, that he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, he was resurrected that third day. He's ascended to your right hand, but his spirit is all about all about this room even now. Abiding in the heart of every believer. Convicting, drawing us to Jesus. Lord, I pray if there be one who doesn't know Christ this morning, your spirit would convict and open eyes to see, ears to hear. Give them a heart to believe. Lord, may we all be renewed and refreshed in what Christ has done for us as we leave this morning. We've been reminded from your word, Jesus is the only way. Work now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.